0: The Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second book of the New Testament. Towards the the back of your Bible. As you're turning to Mark, I have kind of turned a a new page, so to speak, I guess, in my life, trying something new the last few weeks and have started doing a little mountain biking. And uh, last Friday, we had biked a little and took a break and went up to the parking lot and started again and came to, we were literally, we were in the parking lot. I can't, I can't glamorize this really. Um, It was a gravel section, a few of you guys that were there laughing already. Well, I'm not great on a mountain bike and Adam, good old Adam, my good old buddy, old pal back there was behind me. And before I knew what happened, I hear Adam going, "Uh uh uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And as I hear him saying, "Uh uh uh-oh, 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 I realize why he's saying, "Uh uh uh-oh, 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 because I'm in the wrong place. I'm over my handlebars, and I've just bite it right over my handlebars. And of course, Adam, fortunately, after that said, are you okay? I said, yeah. And then he just died laughing. I mean, just (laughs) beside himself. And I I had a good, good laugh too. And Good humble pie there, and you know this epic uh, one mile an hour crash in the parking lot. And uh, you know it was one of those moments where Adam, in that moment, did not sit back and just go, "Huh," and keep biking. When when you see somebody going over the handlebars, you respond, and he responded first by "Uh oh," and then by laughter. There's a response. It necessitates a response when you see me in a place I'm not supposed to be, right? Well, the last few weeks, we've looked at the gospel message. We've looked at God, man, and Jesus. And that message necessitates a response. When we hear the gospel message, we have to respond to it. We don't just sit back and, and hear the gospel message and just kind of cross our arms and go, Oh, okay. No big deal. And leave. When we hear the gospel message, we are put in a position where we have to respond to it. That's what we're looking at today is, is the response. So the four key words that we've talked about over the last four weeks are God, man, Jesus, and response. And this week, we want to look at what is the response that the, the gospel calls us to. Because when we hear the gospel, we may embrace it or we may reject it, but we cannot Ignore it. We cannot ignore it. You, you have to either reject Christ or confess Christ. There, there's no in-between. There's no middle ground. Scripture does not allow for neutrality. You come to, I think one of the clearest lines in the sand in Scripture, so to speak, is in First John 5:11 and 12, where, where John writes, and he clearly kind of draws a line in the sand and says that "He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So you're either a Christian or you're not. You're either following Christ or you're not following Christ. You're either a slave or a son. You're either enslaved or you are free. There's no in between. There's no neutrality. You're dead or alive. And so all of us in this room will fit into one of those categories. And we need to consider that this morning. Consider what is the biblical response to the gospel message. Here's your key thought this morning that I want to have kind of in the back of your minds that we'll look at and flesh out in in Mark chapter 1. The key thought is that everyone who repents of their sin and trusts Jesus as Lord will be saved and given eternal life. So everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus as Lord will be saved and given eternal life. That's our key thought this morning. Let's turn our attention to Mark chapter 1 beginning in verse 14 and 15 the word of God says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 14 here provides somewhat of a a timestamp for us and a summary of what Jesus is doing at this point in his ministry. As you would guess, at Mark chapter 1 is the beginning of his ministry, right? So the timestamp there is, is it after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah, had done his job. He had prepared the way for the Messiah, right? And he had been arrested. Now, Jesus is doing something that we hear Jesus doing quite often. Jesus comes and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. He is preaching. He's preaching what we talked about the the very first week. We talked about what is the gospel. We talked about the fact that it is God's good news. It's the gospel of God, the good news of God, or the good news from God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's proclaiming this good news. I just have a way of review. If you haven't been here, that good news, we remember it by three simple words, God, man, and Jesus. That's the the good news, right? we're talking about response today, but the good news is that that God is the creator of all things. He is holy and he is just. He's the Lord of all creation. And he created man in his image to have fellowship with him, communion with him, to bring him glory. But man rebelled against God and sinned, and because of that sin, there was a separation between man and God. And that sin wasn't just the sin that was isolated to Adam, but Scripture teaches us that it is something that we inherit, that he passes down. He is known as our federal head. So that in Adam, we are all born sinners, and then we all choose to sin, deserving of God's wrath, God's holy and just wrath. We talked about we're utterly deserving of that because God is holy. Is who he is. It's his character. He is just. And because he is Lord, he has the authority to punish sin. And because he is holy and just, he must do so or it will violate the character of who he is in his essence. But God knew we were separated. God knew the punishment that was upon us. God knew the wrath that would be poured out on us by him. And he knew there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. So he sent Jesus Christ, his own son, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, never sinning, tempted in every way, and never sin. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross. He went to the cross and died in our place, taking the full wrath of God, paying the price to redeem us from our sins. He was buried, was in the grave three days later, and he rose victoriously from the grave defeating death and the promise we have is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved see the good news is God man Jesus and this morning we consider what is the response we're called to make to that what is the response when we hear that message what is the response you, you might you might recall in our study of Matthew you all who were here in, in our study of Matthew in Matthew four twenty three. we read about Jesus, before he gets to the Sermon on the Mount, and it describes his ministry. It describes him as, as preaching and teaching and healing. It was the, the three activities that, that described his ministry. Those three things. Every time you, you flip through the Gospels, Jesus is always doing one of those things. He's, he's either preaching the Gospel, or he's teaching about doctrine, about God, about the Gospel, or he's healing. He's helping people in their physical need. Well, I want you to hear what we read in Luke 4, 42-44. says when it was day he departed and went into a desolate place he had just healed many he had just been doing a lot of healing he goes into a desolate place it says the people sought him came to him and would have kept him from leaving them but he said to them here's the important part i must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to the other towns as well for i was sent for this purpose i was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of judea so Jesus is constantly preaching and teaching and healing. But Jesus says, I, I've got to depart. I've got to go on. I can't stay here and just keep on healing and healing and healing because I have come to preach. I've come to declare the good news. And so I must go on. This is the purpose for which I came. And so Jesus goes about and he begins preaching. He begins preaching and proclaiming the gospel. But what I want you to see this morning is in John, uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, is that Jesus is not only proclaiming the gospel he's not just relaying facts what else is he doing look at mark 1 14 and 15 after john was arrested jesus came into galilee proclaiming the gospel of god and he's saying something and what he's saying is important for us this morning what is he saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel Jesus is calling for a decision. He's calling for a response. Not only is he going about and preaching the gospel and saying this is the gospel message, he is calling for a response. And we see here that he is doing so with a sense of urgency. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You might recall last week, if you were here with us, that that we looked at Galatians 4.4. Do you remember how four started in Galatians. It started by saying when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So Jesus comes and he's preaching and he calls for a decision. He says the time is fulfilled. God's plan is unfolding. The time is in bloom. The great pinnacle of human history is here. The kingdom is at hand. This is the moment that the prophets foretold. That was his message. The time is here. There's urgency in that. It is a time for you to make a decision. And then he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The king had come. He had come. But he didn't come to to wield a sword. He didn't come to conquer nations and to put people in subjection under him as his battle-won subjects. He came to establish rule in the hearts and lives of those he created. And so he says the kingdom has come. It's the kingdom that, again, in our study in Matthew, we talked about it's the, the kingdom that he said in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, would be inherited by the poor in spirit. Or those who, in verse 10 of Matthew 5, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In, in Colossians, it's the kingdom into which God transfers all who Jesus redeems. It, Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the kingdom in Matthew 6.10 that we're, we're taught to pray. When, when the Lord gives us our model prayer, we're taught to pray that his kingdom would come. This kingdom is here. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the moment. But for us, we, we want to understand this sense of urgency that Jesus comes proclaiming. That the time is now. Today is the day of salvation. But what I want us to see, what I want us to consider this morning, is that Jesus does not just come and relay information. He's not come and just say, this is the gospel. These are the three words. He doesn't just say God, man, and Jesus. This is what you need to know. He says, this is what you need to know. And I'm calling you to respond. I'm calling you to turn to God. He calls for a response. He calls for a decision. Listen, Christians, if we merely share the gospel without calling for a response, we're stopping short of our responsibility. We're leaving an important component out. I I just reflected on that this week. And the Lord brought to mind times where I had gospel conversations with people in various settings. And I didn't take that extra step to say, would you repent and believe today? And I look back on that with regret. And I trust that the Lord will work. I trust the Lord will use that. But I look back and I, I see that there are times where I didn't call for a response. I would encourage us and and exhort you to call for that response. Call for someone to make that choice, to repent and believe. It's a call to obey, submit to, and confess the gospel, or to disobey the gospel, to turn away from it, to reject it. It's one of the two. When Jesus looks out and he says, repent and believe, the choice is either to do so or to not do so. There's no in-between as we said essentially, or we said at the beginning. What, what Jesus is saying here is He's saying essentially you could word it this way. Now's the time. You've got a choice to make. Repent and believe. He's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel message and He looks at him. and He says now is the time. It's now. Today is the day of salvation. You have a choice to make. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What will you do? See the gospel is not simply something we share for the sake of relaying information. The the gospel is not merely something that that we just want to know about and that we sit back and admire. The the gospel is not just simply a a subject we study, a book we read about, or something we sit back and and tell people as a nice, quaint little story. The the gospel is a message of God, from God. It's the good news and it's the good news that we must respond to two it's the good news that presents us with a decision a decision to believe or reject what god has done it's a decision to to look and understand that god is indeed holy and just he is lord so he can and he must judge sin and we are sinful and it puts us in a great dilemma right a dilemma that that we would incur and be the objects of god's holy wrath we're described as children of wrath in ephesians 2 we, we read Romans 5. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We need to hear it again. Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be, be saved by him. From who? From the wrath of God. It's from God's own wrath that he sent Jesus to save us from. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10. If we have time, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he says Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come. That wrath is God's wrath. It's the message we need to understand. It's a message that when we hear that, we have to make a decision. Will we turn, will we repent and trust Christ, or will we reject that? I don't know how many of you have read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I know when I was in school, we had to read a segment of it, just enough to kind of get the the illustration and for the English teacher to talk about how mean Jonathan Edwards was. Well, you need to go read the whole sermon. The, The reason that's such a powerful and piercing and famous sermon is because in it, Edwards gives such a clear and powerful picture of both the wrath and the mercy of God in one moment. That the wrath of God has us as sinners hanging over the fires of hell, but it's His mercy that keeps us from being plunged into it. It's the wrath and the mercy of God. And it's a clear call saying that God is patient, but His patience is not to be presumed upon. It's the kindness of God that should lead us to salvation, to trust Him, knowing that there is urgency before us. The time is at hand. Today is the day of salvation that we would turn to Him. Christian, We must share the gospel and call for a response. Unbeliever, we have to understand the call before you today is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's the call of the gospel. The content of the gospel is in God, man, and Jesus. The response is to repent and believe. Would you repent and believe? That's the question today. Don't delay. The the time is at hand. As the scriptures say, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. So the gospel is to be shared, is to be preached, is to be proclaimed, so that people might respond in faith to what God has done. So what I want us to do in the remainder of our time is just to consider this response. And as we do, here's what I want to ask of you. I want to ask, Would you consider and weigh what has my response been to the gospel? Have I responded biblically to the gospel call? Or have I responded in a way that is unbiblical? Or have I simply not responded, which is actually rejection? Where are you today? The gospel call. The response that we're called to make is repent and believe. It's really quite simple, isn't it? Repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sins, believe, trust in Christ. But it's a a call that's been kind of abused and twisted and misunderstood, manipulated in various ways over the years. It's a call that's been neglected and forgotten over the years. I I, I want to just consider just for a minute a, a few things that Jesus does not say. It calls that he doesn't make. Jesus does not go about preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, now go and be a good person. He doesn't say that. He doesn't stand before the people and share the good news that that God, man, and Jesus and then say, now you just go and be a good person now. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say go to church. He he doesn't say, here's the good news, here's the gospel, I'm going to proclaim all that God's done, now you get yourself in church. He doesn't say that. He, he also does not say, you know what, here's the gospel. I am going to talk to you about who God is, reminding you of all He's done, His character, His nature, His great works, His mighty works. I want to talk to you about who you are as made in Him, and the doctrine of man, and who you are as a man and the image of God and I'm going to explain all this to you and, and where you stand before him. And I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, God's own son and the doctrine of Christ and woo you with this great Christology of who I am. I've come to save you. And I just want you to know that. I want you to be able to recite that. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I just want you to have this intellectual grasp or understanding. I just want you to to go, you know what? Yeah, I think that's a good story. I would would say that's true. He calls us to more than just saying, oh, yeah, it's true. I I believe it. Okay. He doesn't even call us to agree with the Christian ethic, to affirm that. You know what else he doesn't say? He doesn't say, get baptized. He, He doesn't say, here's the gospel, here's the good news, now get baptized. Now, we see in Acts, we see in Acts when they, the, the apostles preach and they'll preach and they'll say repent and be baptized. What should we do to be say repent and be baptized? There's an understanding contextually. If you look at all those verses, all those passages contextually, the understanding is a repent and faith, repent and trust. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, here's the gospel. Now let's all just go get baptized. Sometimes I, 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 I think someone can get so kind of enamored by the moment. There's, there's, a, there's a fear I have with this whole the, the trend that we see in our day of, of these spontaneous baptisms where it's just thrown out there and we're just going, okay, everybody come up here and let's all go jump in the water. Let's all get baptized. And, well, you, you, yeah, let's baptize you. And people come up and it's so easy and so possible for people to get caught up in the moment and to go through that never to understand who God is, what God's done, who man is, what man's done, who Christ is, what, man, what Christ has done and truly hear the call to repent and believe. And instead they they can get caught up in the moment and just go and get baptized. Then baptism can quickly become a work we trust in for salvation rather than something we do as a demonstration of our salvation. We can't let that happen. Yes, baptism is biblical. Yes, knowing and understanding the gospel is important. Yes, going to church is important. Yes, we're called to walk in holiness and live lives as good, Christ-honoring, God-exalting Christians and followers of his. But none of those merit salvation. None of those are the response to get salvation. It's faith and repentance is what we're called to. One final thing he doesn't say. He doesn't proclaim the gospel, the good news, and say, now repeat these words after me. He doesn't give a sinner's prayer. Just say this prayer and you'll be saved. Now... I know I have to be careful here. I know this is something that I would say that a lot of pastors, people that I'm friends with, they, they do this with good intentions. With very good intentions. And, and I would say, I would stand before you today and say that, that my pastor, when I was a child, said, now say this prayer after me when he came to my house to visit with me. But I would also say that I had trusted Christ and confessed Christ before that. And I was not trusting in that prayer and those words to save me. See, that's an important thing. Do we pray? Do we come before the Lord in prayer, crying out as a sinner in need of God's mercy, repenting and trusting him? Yes. But it's not the words that save you. It's not as though there's this this quaint little message in a prayer that if we say these words, it will save us. It's Christ that saves, not a prayer. And so if you're leaning on words you've said, but not on the Christ who saves, then there's a problem. So Jesus didn't say, say these words after me. Jesus called for a simple response. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. They're they're really two sides of the same coin. It's a penitent faith, a repentant faith. The the two go hand in hand. Saving faith is repentant faith. Faith is bathed in repentance. Repentance is secured and held fast by faith. True faith and repentance cannot be separated when it comes to response to the gospel. If you are responding as we're called to respond, you won't separate the two. Repentance is the response to the message that we are sinners. We are sinners deserving God's holy wrath. We've fallen short of God's holy standard. We've rebelled against him. We've disobeyed him. And so repentance is the response to that, that we would see that, we would behold the holiness of God, we would behold the sinfulness of man, our own personal sin and rebellion, and beholding that, we would repent from that. We would repent from it. Faith is the call to respond to the message that Jesus paid the necessary price, that we would see who God is and who man is, that we would turn from that, we would repent of that, but then we would trust Christ wholly, trusting in Christ alone, trusting in Him for salvation, trusting that His blood, His work on the cross is sufficient to save us. Scripture teaches repentance and faith together. We have this Mark 14 and 15 in Acts 19.4. Paul says, he, he's preaching, he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul's describing his ministry in Ephesus to the Ephesian elders, and he says that he was testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 6.1, one of the warnings from the, the writer of Hebrews, when he issues a warning, he's talking about not going back to the elementary doctrines, but to press on to maturity. The elementary doctrines he describes as the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Repentance and faith, the biblical response. Let's think about repentance for a moment. What is true repentance? What does it mean to repent? Repent, basically, maybe the easiest way to describe it is, is turning around. It's is, is turning around. It's changing one's mind. It's changing one's, one's thinking and direction. It involves and impacts one's entire life through your direction, your habits, your attitudes, your actions that you turn around. It involves the whole person. If it, if it lacks life change, it's just sentimentality. It's just feeling sorry about something in a moment. If it lacks genuine heart change, then it's focused merely on avoiding consequences. Repentance is to turn from your present way of life and turn to what God has called you to, to turn to Him. Now, repentance, I believe, is often left out of the gospel because of what it implies think about what that implies if you hear the gospel message and the call is repent and believe what is that telling you that you're guilty that you're sinful that your present direction is wrong and that you need to turn and so it's not popular in our day it's not something that we want to hear but it was something that Jesus was very clear about in his ministry. He calls us here to repent and believe in the gospel. In, in Luke 5, when he calls Levi, the tax collector, and he has a, he's invited into his house and he's eating with him. The Pharisees get all mad that he's eating with, with tax collectors, right? What is his response? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I'm call, I'm, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Sinners. See, when we hear the gospel, we're confronted with the reality that we are sinners. And we need Christ. We need to turn to him. Thomas Watson, the Puritan pastor, wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And in it, he gives six ingredients for biblical repentance. We we won't take long here, but I just want to share those with you. He gives six ingredients for biblical repentance. What is true biblical repentance? The first one he says is the, the sight of sin. He says that, that we, we must, or sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. We need to be confronted with the fact that sin is real. And sin is here. It's not just there. We like, we're okay with sin we think about, hey, everybody else is sinners. You know, it's easy for me to stand behind this nice pretty pulpit and go, hey, you guys are sinners. It's a lot more uncomfortable when I stand up here and I say, you're sinners just like me. Because I'm a sinner in need of God's grace too. It's a lot more difficult when I look in the mirror and I see the sins that have wreaked havoc in my life. We must see sin and weep over sin. The second characteristic, the first one is the sight of sin. We must first see it before it can wet, be wet for. And second, he says there should be a sorrow for sin. A sorrow for sin. Second Corinthians 7, 9, says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret in comparison to a worldly sorrow or worldly grief. Godly grief, there's a, a sorrow over sin. Not only do we see it, but we're sorrowful. It brings about grief in our hearts. Which leads to the third, he says, there should be a confession of sin. Confession of sin, that we see sin, we are, have sorrow for sin, and then we confess our sin. Essentially, we are simply agreeing with God that sin is sin. We're agreeing with God and going, yes, God, you've revealed that in my life, I see that in my life, and it is indeed sinful but fourthly Watson said that not only should we confess sin there should be a shame for sin there should be shame for sin that we no longer wallow in it did you ever have those moments moments as a kid where you're out I used to get in trouble because I would get these new tennis shoes and they'd be nice and white and shiny and I hated white tennis shoes and so I would go outside and I would play in the dirt on purpose and get them as dirty as I could right? Have you ever done something like that or maybe some new jeans and got out and you're just wallowing, playing in the dirt and having fun and your mom comes out, right? In that moment, you're like, (laughs) you stand up and you're ashamed of what you've been doing. You no longer wallow in sin, but you get out of it, you step out of it. We should have a shame for sin if we're truly repentant. Fifth, if we're truly repentant, we should have a hatred for sin. A hatred for sin. I love what Watson said. He said, How far are they from repentance who instead of hating sin, love sin? To the godly, sin is as a thorn in the eye. To the wicked, it is as a crown on the head. What is sin to you? Is it like you have a thorn in your eye or is it like you are wearing a crown? Are you proud of the sin that you wallow in? Are you ashamed of it? Do you hate it? you want to get away from sin that you fall into? And finally, sixthly, he says there should be a turning from sin. A turning from sin. Watson says there is a change wrought in the life. Turning from sin is so visible that others may discern it. Therefore, it is called a change from darkness to light. There should be an observable change, he says. There should be a difference that we see. Repentance is a critical aspect of of the response to the gospel. Jesus meant no words when he talked about repentance. None whatsoever. He was very clear in warning that we must repent. In in fact, listen to to Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. We we don't really know the details of what he's talking about here. It's not accounted for in Scripture, but something obviously contextually. His hearers knew exactly what he was talking about. I want you to hear the warning. In Luke 13, starting verse 1, There were more present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. But what he's doing essentially is he's saying, Look, you heard about the, the earthquake in Japan that killed all those, or the earthquake in a- Afghanistan. Do you think that those Afghans were greater sinners than you? Just because there was a disaster? Do you think they were more guilty before God than you? No. He says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. In Acts 17, 30 to 31, Paul, in his sermon to, in Athens, said, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Listen to what he says. Because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In Paul's sermon he looks and he says God has called all men to repent. Every person sitting in the seats of Grace Baptist Church this morning are called to repent. And believe in Christ. All men everywhere. Why? Because He has set a day in which He will judge the world in the righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is that? Is Christ. Is Christ. Unbeliever, today is the day of salvation. The time is at hand. Don't delay. Don't don't delay. Repent. Believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. So, what is biblical faith then? We said repent and believe. We talked about biblical repentance. What is biblical faith? Biblical faith is, is that which places full and total trust in God for salvation. It's full and total trust in God for salvation. Not just this willy nilly out in the blue, this faith. It's just, oh, okay, I just have faith. No. It is, it's faith that puts full and total trust in God for salvation through the work of Christ on the cross, through what Jesus has done. The scriptures teach us that, that we are saved by faith alone. That, that simply means that we cannot add any works to what we do. We, we can't add it and say, you know what, um, I, I believe and I've also done these things and so that qualifies me for salvation. The reality is that, that man cannot, will not, has never been able to save himself. But the good news is that God has provided salvation through Christ. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That all who trust him in faith will be saved. That is the good news. That's the message of the good news. That we are saved by faith. This penitent faith. I want you to just hear scripture's testimony. That salvation comes through faith in Genesis fifteen six, all the way back in Genesis in the life of Abraham, we read that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's testified again in both James and Romans as a hallmark of faith that we're that, that he believed the Lord; he was, it was credited to him as righteousness. In Romans 1:16, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who. Believes. That's good news. It's not by, for what everyone who does this or achieves this or looks like this or can do that. It's for the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. John three sixteen is the message that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Everyone who calls, oh, sorry, that's Romans ten thirteen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? That we are, are saved through salvation. We call on the name of the Lord because we believe in him. John 3.16 teaches what? That he or whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life in Christ our Lord. Galatians 2.16, it's the good news that we're declared innocent before God, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.8, it's the good news that it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing that no man should boast. In Philippians 3.9, it's the good news that it's the righteousness of God that comes not through our own works or our heritage, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, of God that depends on faith. In Colossians 2.12, it's the good news that we're raised to life with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 14, it's the good news that we do not grieve as others who do not have hope, but since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it's the good news that God chose us to be saved, not by works, but through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it's the good news that the living God is the Savior of those who believe. In 1 Peter 1.9, it's the good news that the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. And in 1 John 5, 11, and 12, we talked about earlier, it's the message that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It is faith that saves. Faith, repent, turn, and believe, trust in Christ. It's not just this intellectual knowledge of the, what the gospel is. It is trust in what Christ has done in the gospel message. We can't confuse the two. We don't need to confuse faith with this intellectual understanding. True faith is not just mentally believing something is true. And I have to believe that's an important thing for us to hear this morning. It is possible to mentally ascend to the gospel. To mentally say, yes, I think that's true. But to never trust Christ. Don't don't just get lost in this intellectual knowledge about what Christ did. Do you truly believe and trust that Christ died for your sins, that he rose three days later, that he paid the necessary price? Are you trusting in him and in him alone for salvation? Are you trusting him? See, when that's the case, when we're truly trusting him, then faith isn't something we just claim. Faith is something that we see. Faith isn't something that we just say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. No, it's something that is lived out. It's something that just time and time again I've shared with young people over the years. One of the easiest ways I can describe it is I can stand here all day and say I have faith in that chair that it will hold me. I'm looking at it, it looks structurally sound, but if I never sit in that chair, I've never exerted any kind of trust in that chair. But every one of you this morning, right now, are trusting a chair to hold you up. You have full trust in it right now. I don't see anyone doing any kind of a leg workout, trying to squat and not put all your weight on the chair. Because you trust it. There's a difference in just knowing something and trusting. Biblical faith is trusting. James 2. James 2 is a passage you can turn to and look at later today. We talk about the difference between just an intellectual knowledge of the gospel, of who Christ is, as opposed to faith that is seen, is evidence, it's shown, there's fruit of it. That's what James 2 argues, James 2, 14 to 26. James' argument there is that, that faith is a company of works, it produces works, it works accompany faith. He's not saying that you earn your salvation. He's not saying that works give your salvation, right? He's saying that works come as a result of genuine faith, that genuine faith is going to be displayed and seen and lived out. So what James is saying and the, pre- the point he's pressing on here is that if you're one that says, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe, but yet there's no difference in your life, there's no fruit, there's no evidence, then you should be warned. You should be worried about that. It should be a red flag. The case and point that he gives there is in James 2, verse 19. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe and they shudder, he says. Saving faith, biblical faith, is more than just... Mentally knowing something to be true is trusting what is true with all of your heart, all your soul, trusting in that. I just want you to hear 1 Thessalonians 1 as we close today. Many of you in here studied through 1 Thessalonians. I want you to hear verse 2 through 10 of chapter 1. I, I think this is a just a, a good example of repentant faith exemplified. We see the outworking of true saving faith in this passage where, where Paul just shares his prayer. Listen to what Paul says. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I just want you to see a couple of things. Why does He why does He think? God for them? What is it that comes to mind? Why is he mentioning them in, their pra- in his prayers? Because of the work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. The work of faith. It's not faith done by merit. It's not something that's like accomplished. What that is, is it's easier to translate and understand work produced by faith. Steadfastness produced by hope. Labor produced by love. So faith produces works. Love produces labor. Steadfa- or Hope produces steadfastness. And so we see that he is thankful for their faith. How did did they know? How how does Paul know that they're called? How does he know that that they were chosen by God, he says? It's because they responded to the gospel. The Holy Spirit has powerfully moved in them. They were convicted, right? They became imitators of the apostles and of Jesus. And their faith was made known everywhere, he says there in verse 8. Their faith had been made known everywhere. It was evident. It was displayed. It was seen. It was spoken of. People talked about it because they were just living out their faith it was evident there was fruit of their faith and then verse 9 what was what was reported what was reported it was reported it was repentance for they themselves report concerning us this kind of recession we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God they had repented from serving idols and they turned away from those idols and turned to God It's repentance. We see repentance and we see faith here in the Thessalonians and Paul celebrated that. He was thankful for that. He appreciated that. He was relaying that to them. Listen, at, at, at the end of the day, you just have to know the gospel message demands a response. It demands a response. You can't sit back neutral, indifferent. It, it's more than just intellectually getting it and understanding it. Do you trust? Is all you have done is understood the gospel? Is all you have done is say, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God? God's holy. Well, James would say, yeah, that's great, I'm proud of you. The demons would say the same thing. And do you really think Satan has any question about the fact that God's holy and that he sent Jesus and Jesus rose from the grave? I'd say Satan has a pretty good understanding of that. It's more than just intellectually confessing something. It's more than just tolerating it every Sunday morning and coming and listening to a sermon. It's trusting. Would you turn from your sin and trust Christ? Repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. It is the response called for in Scripture. J.C. Ryle said this, We may reach heaven without learning, or riches, or health, or worldly greatness, but we shall never reach heaven if we die impenitent and unbelieving. It is possible, it's possible to go to heaven and not be the sharpest tool in the shed, not to know all the theology and all the terms. It's possible to go, rich or poor. It's not possible to go without repenting and believing in Christ for salvation. You can do a lot of religious things and not be saved. You can do a lot of good deeds and not be saved. You can come to church a lot and not be saved. You can say a prayer and not be saved. The biblical response is repent and believe. Repent and believe. They go hand in hand. You can't separate them. If you leave faith and only talk about repentance, then you pave the way to legalism. But if you leave out repentance and only talk about faith then you're sitting in the land of easy believism. Faith and repentance. Two sides of the same coin. Penitent faith. Have you responded to the gospel by repenting and believing in Christ? If you haven't I would call you to do that today. Repent. Turn from your sins. Trust Christ. There is no middle ground. To not do so is to reject Christ. To remain a stranger. A child of wrath. Enslaved to your sin. Repent and believe in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I bow today, Lord, and God. I pray for friends gathered here today or friends that perhaps may be listening at a later time. Lord, I ask you to do a great work in their lives. God, would you open their eyes to behold you as Pastor Mike prayed earlier. God, as we sang earlier in the great hymn by Wesley, God, would you shine forth a quickening light. Would you bring life to dead hearts that they might see you and behold you turning from their sin and trusting you, Lord Jesus, for salvation alone. God, we just acknowledge I can't do that for anyone. I wish I could, but I can't make anyone believe. And we need you. We need you to do a great work in the hearts and lives of people we love. So, God, I ask you to do that, please. God, those of us who are believers, God, I pray that we would be faithful to not only just share the truths of the gospel of who you are and who we are and what you've done. But God, help us to be diligent to call for a response. To call for a decision. God, use us, God, to boldly proclaim the gospel. Fill us with your spirit, God, that we would boldly tell others of you and of your grace your mercy God we long to see people come to know you God, would you please use us work powerfully through our midst for your glory and the good of those who are enslaved in sin and the law and the elementary principles of the world God free them by the blood of Christ Please, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.